Now, for those of you who do not know me, my name is John Horning, and I used to be the youth director here at Foothills Church um, a bit less than a year ago now, but today I'm just a guest speaker. I'm just a seminarian with a beard. <laughs> but to make you feel more at home, while you guys are turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I'll do that hand thing my dad does before we get into the Word. <laughs> now, we are going to be talking about Ecclesiastes today, and this passage was given to me about six months ago, so I was very stoked about it. For those of you who might not know this, Ecclesiastes is my favorite book of the Bible, and a few distinctives about Ecclesiastes that I think will set it apart. One, Ecclesiastes is written by King Solomon, and it's written at the end of Solomon's life as he looks back on a life of regret and as he is trying to encourage people to not repeat the mistakes he made. If you've ever had the opportunity to maybe sit across from an older person looking back on life and giving you the best advice they can, this is Solomon's version of that. This is his admonition to the young people of the world. And Ecclesiastes is also one of three books in the Bible explicitly written for young people, the other two being Proverbs and Song of Solomon. All, both of which also happen to be written by Solomon. And it also deals with some very heavy realities that we tend to prefer not to think about. One of the things that you've often heard of vanity of vanities, everything is vanity, where Ecclesiastes is written where, about how you live life in light of death. And so because of that, because Ecclesiastes can be such an uncomfortable thing for us to think about and address, it can often be left alone. And in my own experience, I find that often the very same things that are so uncomfortable for me to think about when I have taken the time to really wrestle with them and learn what God has for me in those uncomfortable realities, they're the same things that are more helpful than anything else. And Ecclesiastes has proven to be that especially for me, where as a young person, I have been able to benefit from the things that are in here. But I also recognize that in addition to the heavy realities in Ecclesiastes, there are also some passages that cause you to scratch your head. There are some things that you come across them in your devotions, and you're like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with that. And so today, we're going to be addressing one of those passages. And my hope is that as we look at Ecclesiastes today, that one, some of the heaviness of the book turns into an encouragement, and two, that some of the confusion that it can exist in this book can become clarity. So the next time you have the opportunity to go through this book, you can go to it like a friend instead of like an unfortunate enemy. So I'm going to read the passage, and it goes like this. I have seen everything in the days of my vapor. There is a righteous man who dies in his righteousness, and there is a guilty man who lengthens his life in his wickedness. Do not be abundantly righteous, and do not make yourself wise excessively. Why should you be ruined? Do not be abundantly guilty, and do not be foolish. Why should you die before your time? What is good is that you take hold of this, and that you do not let go of that, because the one who fears God will go out with both of them. Thus saith the Lord... Now, at first glance, I'm, I'm sure you can kind of already tell uh, where some of the confusion might come from this passage, because at first glance, that looks an awful lot like 
um, an inspired author just said, don't worry about being all that righteous. And also, it's kind of okay to be a little bit wicked. You know, pepper your salt. And that's... Um, that's in complete contradiction to the entire rest of the Bible. And so there's a real question of, okay, what are we supposed to do with that? And before I dive into what we're supposed to do with that, I instead want to go to the next slide and talk to you about something oh so per, uh, pertinent, cobblestone paths. Now, some of the youth students might uh, be <laughs> having flashbacks, because this is the, not the first time I've used this example. But a cobblestone road is a metaphor that I like to use for how you're supposed to address books of the Bible. Because oftentimes, in our own modern Christianity, we have a tendency to have all of our beliefs and all of our theology be wrapped up in verses that we can put on a t-shirt. Where we don't necessarily interact with books, we take individual verses or individual passages, and we kind of pluck them out of context, and that's about as much as we know. And that can cause some serious issues, because the Bible is not designed to be read that way. Each individual book of the Bible is like a cobblestone road, where each verse is like a stone that makes up that road. And you're not supposed to go up to a cobblestone road, look at a really nice rock, polish it a bit, and then pick it up and walk away with it. But you're, in, you're instead supposed to walk down that path. And so, if you take a stone out of context, that can have some unintended side effects. And sometimes there are some verses that you can pull out of context and they mean basically the same thing. For example, John 3.16, something we've all heard. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whether you know the context around that verse or not, it means the same thing and it really packs a punch. You don't need to know that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and having some conversation about salvation to be able to take this verse, hand it to someone, and let them understand the thrust of it. There are some verses that you can take out of context and they work. But there are other, other verses that they lose their meaning when you do that. For example, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. And it's like, okay, Jesus cried? I mean, I, I guess that probably happened at some point in his life. I don't know why that's a massive deal. And pulled out of context, that verse loses all of its weight. But when you read that passage in context, where Jesus is coming to the grave of his friend Lazarus, surrounded by the mourning members of Lazarus' friends, family, and the religious leaders of the area, and then you see that Jesus wept, that verse carries weight. And it is one of the most often discussed verses in that passage because of some of its other implications. Where out of context, it's just a quick little sentence. But in context, it's one of the most powerful verses in that passage. But there are other verses, like Mark 10, 21, that their meaning changes. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. Thus saith the Lord. These are the words of Jesus. I can walk up to any one of you and I can say, go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Thus saith the Lord. But if you know the context, then you're aware that this is a specific conversation that Jesus is having with the rich young ruler. That a man comes up to him and says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you got to keep the law perfectly. And then the guy says, oh, I have. And Jesus, in the back of his mind, is thinking, mm-hmm. And then he says, well, okay. 
This you still lack. Go, sell everything you have, and give it to the poor. And the man went away sad because he had many possessions. Jesus had pinpointed the one thing in this man's life he was unwilling to give up, and then he demanded it. This is not a general command to every believer. This was a specific command given in a specific instance. And yet, if I just pluck it right out of context, I can sure make that sound like a general command, can't I? Well, okay. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes. Because this passage is exactly the same. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is not intending for you to go to his book and treat it like a buffet, take the verses you like, and then put them up on walls, and just leave it there. But rather, Ecclesiastes is a coherent discussion. It is a coherent presentation of an argument. And specifically, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 to chapter 11 is a cohesive, complete section. If you do the, uh, if you've ever heard of the 2020 rule, if you want to get the context of a verse, you read 20 verses behind and 20 verses after. That doesn't work in this case. And it often doesn't work. It can approximate context quickly. But if you want to understand the verse in any given passage, you need to read the entire book. Because especially here, I want to show you Ecclesiastes 1.3. Because in the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, Solomon expresses exactly what kind of conversation he's having. He says, what profit does a man have with all his labor, which he labors under the sun? In this moment, Solomon has identified the question that he is answering in this passage, as well as the scope of his discussion. That little phrase, under the sun. When we talk about life under the sun, we are talking about life lived here in the span of our life. This is not a conversation where Solomon is thinking about the afterlife. Solomon is saying, let's evaluate this life on its own. And let's ask some questions. Specifically, what good is there? This life on its own, without a consideration for the afterlife, what does it have to offer? And some of you are very familiar with Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. The fact that everything is a vapor. The very first thing that Solomon identifies is like, well, okay, let's talk about what it isn't. Because the issue with your life is that it's going to end at death. Everything that you build up over the span of your life here will pass away. And if by some miracle it lasts for a little while, it doesn't actually matter because you're not here to enjoy it. So the first thing we know is that this life isn't going to produce anything permanent. And so that means that the best strategy, if you only consider this life within its own means and scope, is you just got to enjoy yourself. And that is what the rest of Ecclesiastes 1 to 11 is. After establishing that the best this life has to offer is the pleasure that exists therein, Solomon then explores, well, okay, how do you maximize pleasure in various contexts and in light of various realities? In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon discusses how do you enjoy life in light of God's sovereignty, the unpredictable seasons that can come and go over the course of your lifespan. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he discusses the importance of friendship and community if you're going to enjoy your life. And the interesting thing as well is that even when Solomon addresses moral realities, he motivates them pragmatically. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, he says this, Just as you vow a vow to God, do not delay to complete it because there is no pleasure with fools. 
that which you vow complete. It is better not to vow than to vow and not complete it. Which, by the way, this echoes a passage in Deuteronomy where the same command is given. If you vow a vow, complete it. But notice why Solomon says to do this. He doesn't say, vow your vow and then make sure you keep it because it's the morally right thing to do. He says, why should God be angry because of your voice and vaporize the works of your hands? And this is an extremely interesting angle to have a book of the Bible addressing life from. This isn't what we're used to. We are used to receiving moral commands, but Ecclesiastes 1 to 11 is specifically asking the question, what is the best way to live life under the sun without consideration for the afterlife? And then in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 12, a similar thing happens with wisdom. He says, because to be in the shadow of wisdom is to be in the shadow of silver. In other words, where wisdom is, riches are there. You show me a wise man, and in most circumstances, I'll show you a rich man. And the profit of knowledge of the wise will preserve the life of its masters. Wisdom is a moral reality. You are supposed to be wise. It is a moral issue about whether you are wise or a fool. But Solomon doesn't say, be wise because it's the right thing. He says, be wise because there are consequences if you're not. He's motivated by pragmatism in this section. And so at this point, I'm sure that you can already kind of clearly see how this is going to impact the way that we address Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through 18. Because now we know this is an issue of pragmatism. We aren't asking a question about the moral thing to do in this circumstance. That's not what Solomon is talking about yet. And he will get there, but not yet. But now let's go back to this and let's break it down a bit. He says, I have seen everything in the days of my vapor. A lot of your translations are going to say vanity. The word is literally vapor, but vanity is kind of metaphorically what it means, and that's the traditional translation. It's fine, but vapor is just what I have up there. And this is just a continuation of the same themes that Solomon has already established in the book. Everything's a vapor. Your life ends at death. He's just reiterating. I have seen everything in the days of my vapor. There is a righteous man who dies in his righteousness, and there is a guilty man who lengthens his life in his wickedness. Now, at first glance, this is a shocking circumstance. And the reason, for example, is in Proverbs 3, verse 33, it says, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. If you are reading the Bible, one of the things that you're going to often find is that in most circumstances, being righteous does make your life better. And being wicked does make your life worse because this world is governed by a righteous judge. And so that is the general reality. And so when you see that there are situations in which righteous people suffer and die for their righteousness and wicked people not only get away with their wickedness but prosper because of it, that should really cause you to pause. And that's exactly what it caused Solomon to do. He looks at this situation and he says, okay, if you want to maximize your enjoyment of your life, you're going to need to understand why this happened. And he sees that situation, and he notices something from it. He says, I saw a righteous man who died, and I actually learned something about that righteous man. And it causes him to then give you the following admonitions. He says, do not be abundantly righteous, and do not make yourself wise excessively. Why should you be ruined? And a couple notes on some of the words there. Uh, the word abundantly righteous. It's just a word that means a lot. 
It's a word that means the increase of, a large number of things. Oftentimes, it can have to do with surplus, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means a lot of something. But then, when we see make yourself wise excessively, some translations just say don't be excessively wise, and some translations try to rope in that verb. It's literally a word that means make yourself wise. It's like putting yourself into the state of being wise. We might say learning. Don't learn excessively. And so the word excessively that's used to modify that, that's a word that means surplus. It's used in the book of Ruth when it says that Ruth came, she ate, she was satisfied, and then she had some left over. Left over is that word. And Solomon also uses the same word to describe himself earlier in Ecclesiastes when he says, why then have I been so excessively wise? It means what remains. It means left over. And so... We're going to break this down, and we're going to go easy to difficult. First, I want to answer the question, why is it that being a fool makes your life worse? Because we've got fool, wicked, righteous, wise. And I'm going to address those in reverse order. We're going to start with the fool, we're going to talk about wickedness, we're going to talk about wisdom, and then we're going to talk about righteousness. So let's start with, why is it that a fool was going to suffer more for being foolish. Well, Proverbs 14.3, By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. If you are a fool, you're going to make your life very, very difficult. A wise man once said, Life is hard, but it is harder if you're stupid. <laughs> and the Bible strongly agrees with that statement. <laughs> And so you're also going to notice that in this passage, every other of the four words has an adjective. Don't be abundantly righteous, abundantly wicked, excessively wise. Fool does not have an adjective. There is no level of foolishness that you can have in your life and expect it not to hurt you. So you got to avoid that. Uh, that's easy, though. That's something that we are familiar with because of the rest of Scripture. Let's talk about wickedness. Okay, why does wickedness hurt? Wickedness hurts... For the same reason that we talked about in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you are constantly taunting the justice of God, God can mess you up. And every so often, he uh, very happily does so. God brags about his ability to tread down the wicked and to humble the proud in the book of Job, for example. If you are living in God's world and God is a righteous judge, you do not want to be in a circumstance where his face is directed towards you for your punishment wickedness will mess you up. And that's also easy. That's, again, that's very similar to what the rest of the scriptures say. Let's talk about wisdom. Why is it that making yourself wise excessively introduces suffering? There are two reasons. One of those reasons is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 18. Solomon says, with much wisdom is much vexation, and increasing knowledge increases pain. And at first, that's kind of a weird sentence. And we don't necessarily know exactly why that is. He doesn't explain. For example, it might be that if you're really, really wise, you're more irritated by the foolishness of people around you. Have you ever heard the saying, those who are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it, but those who are not ignorant of history are doomed to watch others repeat it? It's a very similar idea. Maybe you're just more afflicted by the mental suffering of life, where if you're constantly trying to plan for the future and you know all of the different things that could go wrong, you're just always strung out and stressed as you're trying to control outcomes, and you are more wise and thus more able to be aware of those realities and therefore stressed out by them. 
We don't know exactly why, but for some reason, wisdom is an asset with an ongoing cost. If you are wise, there is an aspect of suffering that you are able to endure more than someone who isn't. So that's reason number one. Here's the second reason. Because acquiring wisdom has a labor cost. Like we said, this is a verb. He says, don't make yourself wise in surplus. Don't make yourself wise more than you need to. Time spent acquiring wisdom is time that is not spent enjoying the fruits of that wisdom. And to give you a, a simple example, you can read a book on how to make money, but eventually you need to put the book down and start putting it into practice. If you just constantly read the books, but you never put anything into practice, you never glean the benefit of the knowledge that you are working oh so hard to obtain. Exact same thing. There is a point at which the opportunity cost is too high, where if you keep acquiring wisdom past the point that it actually continues to help you, you're sacrificing some of the good you could have had otherwise. And so it's like, okay, that makes sense. Don't make yourself wise more than you need to if your goal is to enjoy your life as much as you can. And now, for the really fun one, let's talk about abundant righteousness. Why is it that abundant righteousness hurts? Well, let me phrase the question in a slightly different way and see if you might be able to come up with the answer. If you're abundantly wicked, God is against you. If you're abundantly righteous, what group is against you? You guys called that out pretty fast. Okay, and all of a sudden, now that you've just said that, I'm sure that for some of you, there are a lot of other scripture passages flooding to your mind that affirm that reality rather loudly. I mean, just for two examples, let's look at 1 John 3, 12 through 13. John says, and we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. If you are living abundantly righteous, if you are living in uncompromising righteousness, even though God is on your side and there will generally be blessing as a result of that, there is also the reality that you are going to be persecuted by an unrighteous world. Jesus says, do not be surprised when the world hates you. It hated me first. And in the same way, in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not an if. And so, if all you care about is that you want to enjoy your life as much as possible, then you can understand that the ideal strategy is not uncompromising righteousness. If all you care about is enjoying your life as much as possible, then... You can be generally righteous and get some general blessings as a result of that, and then the moment you get pushed back from the unrighteous world, just compromise. If all you care about is enjoying this life. But now, that probably makes a bit more sense, right? There's a bit more clarity around this passage. It's like, okay, that actually slots in quite nicely to the rest of Scripture. That works. Well, how about the next verse? If you want to move back a slide, back to the passage slide. Because in verse 18, it says something kind of interesting. And I want to spend a little bit of time on it because this is going to be something that's helpful to talk about as well. He says, what is good is that you take hold of this and that you do not let go of that because the one who fears God will go out with both of them. 
And in this moment, you might be thinking to yourself, well, okay, in what way are you fearing God when you're deciding to compromise on his commands? That seems a bit backwards, right? Well, here's why. If you've ever read the book of Proverbs, then you know that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And when the Bible addresses wisdom, it always links it with fear. When you say that someone fears God, you're basically saying that they're wise. And when you're saying that someone is wise, you're saying that that person fears God. To the extent that you fear God, you are wise. And to the extent that you are wise, you fear God. Well, here's a fun thought. There are wise atheists. How does that work? Well, God is ruling over the world. God is the one who has established the patterns of life, and when you recognize the patterns by which God rules the world, and then you order your life under them, that is an expression of fear. You are understanding the way that God rules the temporal world, and you are adjusting to that. For example, if you've read the book of Proverbs, and you know that diligence results in produce, and diligence results in profit, And then as a result of looking at God's world, you see that diligence is rewarded by produce and profit, and therefore, I'm going to work hard. Even if you're not fearing God by name, you are recognizing his rule in the world and ordering your life under it. But a Christian fears God quite differently. Because an atheist and a non-Christian can fear God as the ruler of this temporal world, but a Christian fears God as the ruler of eternity. And a Christian is someone who knows that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so the way that a non-Christian is going to order their life under the rule of God is entirely different than the way that a Christian is going to order their life under the rule of God. Because a Christian operates on a different time scale. There's a different kind of fear. And so when a non-Christian or an atheist or anything else looks at the world and recognizes the way that God has designed this world to work, there are certainly general blessings if you are righteous and wise, but there are also some pitfalls caused by the other people living with me uh, if I'm too righteous. When you recognize that God has set up the world to function that way and then you live accordingly, that is a kind of fear but it's not the kind of fear that a Christian has. And now, I've slotted you into the way that Ecclesiastes 7 fits into the earlier portion of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon sets the scope of his discussion. And after Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon continues the same thing of looking at different circumstances and realities and explaining how to live life as enjoyably as possible in that context. But at the end of chapter 11, he does something interesting. He ropes his conversation in, and I want to bring you there now. Because in Ecclesiastes 11, he says this, Because if a man lives many years, let him rejoice in all of them, but let him remember the days of darkness, because they will be many. And this marks an extremely important transition in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because the days of darkness, that's a reference to the days of death. That's a reference to what happens after you're in the dirt. And now he says, okay, we have evaluated life from chapter 1 to chapter 11 based on the merits of life under the sun. And we've addressed what is the best thing that this life can offer under the sun. But now it's time to expand our horizons. There's a governing principle. There's something more important than whether or not you enjoy your life on this earth. And he says, 
Everything which has come is a vapor. And in verse 9, rejoice in the prime of life in your youthfulness and let your heart do good to you in the days of your prime of life and walk in the paths of your heart and in the vision of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. There is a governing reality. And Ecclesiastes 1 to 11 is extremely helpful because it is a very, very good explanation from the wisest man who has ever lived under the inspiration of God himself to explain how you can enjoy life as much as possible. God's not some weird tyrant who has thoughts about people enjoying what he made. Paul says in Timothy that we are supposed to accept good from God and return thanksgiving. You can look back over Ecclesiastes 1 to 11, and there are very good applications. In every way that you can see, you can enjoy life more and do that without losing the pleasure of God. You should do that. I mean, I was just at a wedding yesterday, and every time my dad officiates a wedding, he always talks about Ecclesiastes chapter 4. You know, a threefold cord is not quickly broken where Ecclesiastes 4 is talking about the benefit of friendship and community and intimate relationship with other people, and that makes your life better. And so when I see that, and I see that community and friendship makes my life a whole lot better, and then I also recognize, for example, that God commands me to be intimately involved in a community of Christians, the church, and I understand that that actually has very practical benefit in my life and in the enjoyment of my life, then what I do in that circumstance is I say, oh boy, thank you God for installing things in my life that are there largely for the benefit of my enjoyment. Um, I'm going to take you up on that. And I get to gratefully do the things that make my life better because God is a good father. But then when there are things in Ecclesiastes 1 to 11 where I recognize that following God and obeying God results in making my life worse, well, there's actually things that are more important to me than how much I enjoy my life here, right? right? I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to tell you a fun story. And this is a made-up story, so uh, <laughs> I'm just going to tell it. But <laughs> let's say, for example that I'm a young guy, that I'm like, I don't know, 12 years old or something, and my dad brings me a present. And my dad says, John, I love you, I care about you, and I, I love seeing you happy. I brought you two toy lightsabers. Here you go. Let's just say that in that circumstance, I, I respond and I say, ah, oh, oh, Father, I, uh, I am far too pious to enjoy something pleasurable to myself. And in my asceticism and utmost piety, I will take this generous gift and throw it away. How does my dad feel in that circumstance? Does he feel appreciated? Does he feel pleased? Have I done something good? God's the same way. God has given you good things in this life for the purpose of you enjoying them. And he wants you to enjoy them. You're supposed to enjoy them. One of the most important ways that you worship God is by enjoying the good gifts he gives you and then saying thank you. Okay, second example. Let's say that I receive these lightsabers from, from my dad and I think to myself, well, I know my dad wants me to enjoy these lightsabers. Let's just say hypothetically that the single most enjoyable thing I can do with these lightsabers is 
take both of these lightsabers, run over to my younger brother Jackson, and then just start beating him. <laughs> like, I'm talking wailing on him, right? Which, side note, those of you who know my dad, you are fully aware that would not be the most enjoyable thing to do with those lightsabers. Because you see, kids, there are things that hurt more than a toy lightsaber, and a belt is one of them. <laughs> but let's just say, hypothetically, that that were the most enjoyable thing to do with that present, and that I knew that. And so I go over, and I just start wailing on Jackson. How does my dad feel in that circumstance? Does he, does he feel appreciated? Does he feel happy with me? Is he real pleased that that's how I decided to respond to his gift? Well, no. Yes, my dad wants me to enjoy them, but my dad cares about my brother. And also, my dad, uh, that is not, that's not his intention with those lightsabers. Okay, okay. Third example. Let's just say that I receive these toy lightsabers, and I think to myself, well, I am fully aware that the most enjoyable thing to do with these lightsabers is hit Jackson. I'm fully aware of this, but instead, I'm going to go over to my brother Jackson, I'm going to hand him one of the lightsabers, and then we're going to play Jedi. And although I know that it's less enjoyable than what I could have been doing, <laughs> by the way, it's Jackson's birthday today, so uh, he's having a blast back there. <laughs> And even though I know that it's less enjoyable than what I could have been doing, I'm still enjoying it. I'm enjoying the gift. How does my dad feel about that circumstance? Does he feel appreciated? Does he feel pleased? Okay. That's our life. When we look at Ecclesiastes 1 to 11, God has given us this extraordinarily, extraordinarily helpful explanation of how to enjoy the life and navigate the life that he has given us but when there are circumstances where we are aware of the fact that we would be sacrificing some pleasure in order to please God, we do that. Okay? Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14. This is the very last section of Ecclesiastes. And this is Solomon affirming what I just told you. He says, The end of a matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments because this is for every man. For God will bring every work to judgment regarding every hidden thing, whether good or bad. And so, that sounds an awful lot like abundant righteousness, don't it? Right? We operate on a different time scale. I can understand that this will cause me suffering now, and yet I can do it anyway. And I want to give you two applications of how this principle might work itself out practically. I'm going to give you one historical one. I'm going to give you one modern one. All right. Who here has ever heard the name John Rogers? Nobody? Nobody? So John Rogers was a minister living in the 1500s in uh, the UK. And John Rogers lived under the reign of someone named Bloody Mary. Who's heard Bloody Mary? I'm talking about the person, not the drink, though. So John Rogers <laughs> So John Rogers lived under the reign of Bloody Mary and Bloody Mary was a Catholic who took over who took over the country and then she was real um, on fire about reinstating Catholicism in this nation. So John Rogers was a Protestant minister and one day Bloody Mary gets a hold of him 
And she brings him in front of his community, in front of his church, in front of his family, and she says, recant your Protestant beliefs, or we're going to strap you to that piece of wood over there, and we're going to burn you alive. Now, in this moment, if John Rogers does the righteous thing, and he stands by the gospel, he does what he's supposed to do, is that going to make his life longer and more enjoyable, or is that going to make his life shorter and more painful? Shorter and more painful. And that's, in fact, what he did. He stood by the gospel, and he burned in front of his community, in front of his family, in front of his church. Let me ask you a question. Was John Rogers motivated to be righteous because he was going to enjoy his life more, or was John Rogers motivated to be righteous because there was someone he was aiming to please? John Rogers was motivated to please God. He was not motivated by his enjoyment of life. And I can tell you that for sure, because when he was given a choice between God's pleasure or his life, he chose God's pleasure, regardless of what it costed him. Okay, okay. Modern example. There's the historical one. Here's a modern one. Let's just say that you're at work one day. And one day, one of your coworkers, a guy named Jeff, he comes over to you and he says, hey, uh, my name is actually Justine now, and I'd like you to call me she, her. Okay, let's just quickly break down what's just been asked of you. First of all, um, you've been asked to lie, because you know full well that that's a man, and you have just been asked to identify that man as a woman, and that's a lie. Sinful. Okay, okay, next one. You're an ambassador of Christ. You and I are Christians. We bear God's name in the world. And what we say is supposed to carry weight. We are a nation of priests, and priests are by definition teachers. So when you look at a man and you say, woman, despite the fact that God has made that person a man, despite the fact that God is not unclear about his design for his creation, and despite the fact that you are now affirming this person's rebellion against God, that's a problem. Okay, third one. You're a member of the... Oh, this is Cannon's phone. You're good. Okay, third one. You are a member of the body of Christ. You are a member of the body of Christ. Your mouth is God's mouth. Your hands are God's hands. How do you think God feels about having his mouth used to look at someone living in rebellion against him and then affirm that rebellion? Sinful. Fourth reason, and this is not an exhaustive list. Fourth reason, when you do that, you destroy your gospel witness. Why? Because when you look at a person and you say, actually, I don't care what God has to say about you and your realities. I actually don't care what the Bible says about your gender, and I'm, uh, I'm going to neglect that whenever it's convenient to do so. Also, by the way, let me explain to you why it's really, really important that you submit your entire life to some homeless Jewish guy from 2,000 years ago. When you demonstrate that what God says in one area doesn't matter, you also demonstrate that what he says in all of the other ones don't matter. And you might say, well, they don't know I'm a Christian. I forgot that the goal is for as few people to know we're Christians as possible. So, not an exhaustive list, just establishing that. This is a very modern example, and yet, it's hard. We know that. It's so easy to just compromise. 
It's so easy. Just use the preferred pronouns. Don't, don't stir the pot. If you do, if you, use the person's, uh, if you use the person's actual gender, then there are consequences that come with that. You're going to be viewed a certain way by that person in most circumstances. You're going to be viewed a certain way now by your coworkers, by your friends, by people in your social groups. In some cases, you can lose your job. There can be legal repercussions. Our state especially is moving very quickly towards that, if it's not there already. There are some very real consequences if you just don't compromise on this minor issue. And yet, when you do that, you're demonstrating something about why you are righteous. Am I doing righteous things because it makes my life better? Or am I doing righteous things because I care what God thinks? In those moments, when you are presented with a situation where there will be consequences if you do the right thing, what do you do? I have a bit more time, and I want to explain something else. There's a reason that I personally am so incredibly glad that Ecclesiastes 7 is in this book, and that's 1 Corinthians 3. If you guys want to turn to 1 Corinthians 3 real quick. Now, <clears throat> how many of you were there when we had that guy do a one-man show on the Bema Seat Judgment show of hands? Okay, solid few. <clears throat> so 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the Bema Seat Judgment, and as Christians, we will stand before God, which, first of all, everyone is going to stand before God. If you are a non-Christian, you are going to stand before God, and you are going to be judged for your sins, and you will be found guilty, and you're going to burn. But, very important but, there is an offer on the table. There is an offer for salvation. There is an offer to have Jesus Christ cover your sins. And one of the things that happens when you submit your life to Christ, when you accept his salvation, when you become a Christian, is now the kind of judgment that you face in the future changes. For non-Christians, you're going to stand before God and be judged for your sins, but for Christians, something very different happens. And it's talked about here in 1 Corinthians 3, in verse 10. And Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So as Christians, we stand before God, and God takes all of our righteous works, all of our ministry, all of our service, all of our devotion to God, he puts it in a little sensor, and then he lights a match and drops it in. And then we see what burns. Here's something very important. In chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says that one of the things that is judged is motivations. He says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Why you do righteousness matters. Could you imagine with me for a moment if we lived in a world 
world where if you were righteous and if you were in uncompromisingly righteous, that your life was always better as a result? Could you imagine a world for a moment where the most righteous people have the best life, the least righteous people have the worst life, and you slot wherever you are in the middle? How difficult would it be to figure out why you were being righteous? You would never know. I would never be able to look into my own heart and figure out, am I doing this because I actually care what God thinks, or am I doing this because it makes my life better? But we have the distinct advantage of we do receive God's kindness in this life, and God does bless us in this life. But if you are righteous in the way that God wants you to be righteous, you will suffer. And it's like, an, it's like a bell curve. Really wicked, bad stuff. Really righteous, bad stuff. Ideal in the middle. But the fact that you can know that there are circumstances where your life will be genuinely worse if you are faithful, you can watch what you do in those circumstances. Like I said, I don't have to ask myself, was John Rogers motivated by God's pleasure or his enjoyment of life? Why can I be sure about that? Because I saw the decision he made when it came down to it. How can I look at my own life then and figure out if I am motivated by God's pleasure or by my enjoyment of this life? What do I do in the circumstances where there is a cost and I can dodge that cost with just a little bit of compromise? Because Solomon's message is, you should make an informed decision. Solomon's not trying to trick you and say that your life's going to be better if you're righteous. Solomon says your life will be worse if you're righteous the way God wants you righteous. Also, worth it. 100% worth it. Because we operate on a different time scale. Okay. With that, let's bow our heads and pray it out. Finish the service. Lord, thank you. <laughs> thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you that you have an entire book that is bound up in the regrets of a wise man. Thank you for giving us this gift where we can view life properly, where we can experience the good that you've placed in life, but also that we can have a proper priority. I pray that you would help us to value the things that you say are valuable, that you would help us to enjoy the good gifts that you give us because you are a good father. But Lord that we would have an appropriate priority, that when it comes down to it, where we have a choice between our enjoyment or your pleasure, that we would choose your pleasure because that is better. Amen.